Hello, welcome back to Out of Our Heads, a pop culture podcast from the minds of Joe Bordner and the invincible Nick Protopapis. Nick, how are you on this fine afternoon? Oh, I'm fine, Joe. I just I just got really invested in a Rubik's Cube and I forgot to I forgot that you were gonna call me for this podcast. Oh. Yeah, I I, I remember from, you know, our, our last real life visit that you had become sort of knowledgeable in the arts of the Rubik's Cube. Oh, that's right. I freaked out that girl. I was like, give me your Rubik's Cube. <laughs> Nick, I want to know. I went on an adventure yesterday. Oh, yeah. So here's the thing: back in back in Boston, where we normally live, uh, we have so many Dunkin' Donuts. So 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 many of those fine donut shops where they also sell coffee. Um, and you know, here in in Burlington, Vermont, the the wilderness where nothing exists, uh, we we don't have those. Why are we? Uh, so we're on a quest. <laughs> Hmm? Burlington's really cute. I don't know why you always diss on Burlington. <laughs> nice. It's got everything a man needs. Right. Like a Dunkin' Donuts, which I discovered food. that it does have. It has a Probably. movie theater, despite what you may say. <laughs> it has. Uh, I don't know. What else does anyone really need? Cafe? I mean, it. look, I, I, I went on an adventure to find this Dunkin' Donuts, and I found it. Probably the only Dunkin' Donuts in the entire state of Vermont, but I found it, and it's it's mine now. So, I live there now. Hmm? You, you set off one day, and you were like, I'm going to find I'm... the one Dunkin' Donuts that there may or may not be here? Well, I had heard rumors, because one of my roommates uh, did mention that there was a Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, and so I was, you know, walking out about, and I said, hey, I'm going to find this Dunkin' Donuts. And it took me a while, but I did it, thanks to the help of uh, Google Maps. Oh, so you did look it up on Google Maps? Yeah. So, that sounds like the opposite of an adventure. Well, it was an adventure for me. You 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 put it directions to somewhere on your phone and you went there? Well, see, the thing about my phone is that it's uh, kind of bad at giving me directions. So there was a little <laughs> bit of... Um... <laughs> I'm sorry. Because it doesn't, it doesn't load along with... Um, it doesn't reload... Uh, the cursor for where I'm actually, for where I actually am. Like I have to refresh the page. So it's incredibly disorienting. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how we live here at out of our heads HQ. Um, You're at HQ. What about me? I mean, anywhere we are is out of our heads HQ, Nick. Wow. Nice. Anywhere our listeners are, anywhere we are. And in, in all of us is out of our heads HQ. I think we should triangulate. You, me, and Ben, and that that'll that'll mm-hmm. right. Ben, our one listener. Yeah. So I think HQ is somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. I think I think that's where it would have to be. So my thing this week is um, so the the final issue of uh the comic series Giant Days came out this past week. The fun. I wanted to take some. What? Yeah, the final issue. Oh man, but I haven't read it. Are you going to spoil it? I'm I'm taking pains to not spoil it. Okay. I wanted to sort of reflect on the series as a whole because I think it's something that is, you know, so good that uh, people often like forget to to talk about it in like terms of its actual quality and just say, "Oh, Giant Days is great." Oh, I never. Uh, I, I, you're you're constantly there to remind me. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just I'm just I'm just going on an adventure, a a quest. Some might say, I put directions in my phone to go to um 
you know, what am I doing? A chore to the laundromat. And uh, on this ginormous quest, I meet all sorts of quirky characters like Joe. And he stops me <laughs> away and reminds me that Giant Days is great nonstop. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my role in our friendship. Yeah. Yeah, like you, you haven't gotten as much of that on this podcast, but I, I think like, you know, I, I exist to remind people that Giant Days is not only a thing, but also that it's, you know, one of the best comics ever made. Yeah, and I exist so Joe doesn't look absolutely insane walking around the streets and telling strangers that Giant Days is great. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I just, I, I want to talk about, you know, how fantastic this series has been and just, like, how great it has been at, like, you know, I, I, developing these characters and also maintaining comedic and novel situations with them in a way that, like, I find, like, really admirable, you know? Okay. I was actually thinking about Giant Days today, um, and I was thinking about how it's sort of very similar to a sitcom format in that, like... I mean, that's exactly what it is. Right. But it's special because it's a comic, and it can do sort of different types of humor and be more dynamic in a lot of ways, because it's, you know, cartoony, first of all, um, but second of all, it's a comic, and I think that's kind of cool. Sure, yeah, yeah. I think one of the special things about Giant Days is that even when there aren't, like, explicit jokes the the characters are so well crafted and so charming that like comedy can just arise from like them interacting with each other and that that's like you know one of my favorite things about the series and also about john allison's writing in general is just that he's like so good at creating those dynamics yeah i also i'm i'm a big fan of uh ed gimmel in general just the way he lives his life uh and i admire that (laughs) i i also like giant days (laughs) <laughs> did you find out what uh, giant days means the other day uh so i was i was i was going back uh through uh one of john allison's other comics bad machinery uh quite a while ago and the phrase giant days is used there uh but i think it, it it's basically used to mean like great old times those were the good old days those were giant days that's very interesting yeah actually yeah. I, I always read giant days wrong um, so mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever really read Giant Days because I, I, I read it and I read a whole trade and then I, I, re- I remember at one point that they're, uh, they're British and I, I have read it wrong. So I have to go back and I never do. Yeah. I'm sure it enhances it's... the flavor. <laughs> if you look at like his other comics or John Allison's other comics, uh, then I think you, you get the sense that he is like maybe trying to, to, make giant days less explicitly British than those ones in just like the characters in a lot of his other comics will talk like with a lot of vernacular or they'll, or they'll have like written accents, uh, that like refer to like specific areas, uh, which, you know, I, I think we get less of in giant days, uh, which is interesting to me. So maybe he's like trying to make it appeal to a broader audience with that. I don't know. Anything to say about the, the finalness of the, the finale? Or would that be spoiling me? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid spoilers. I I, I will say that I, I generally really ending, enjoyed bro. it. It's a happy ending. Okay, that's all I need to know. I love happy endings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was not a hundred percent satisfied with it. I don't know that I am not with a lot of John Allison's endings to his comics, uh, but that is largely a me problem, and I think not something that will. 100% extend to you when you read this eventually. Okay. I will eventually. Definitely. 
Yeah. The final trade, I believe, comes out sometime next year okay. because Boom is doing who knows what with their trade schedules. I don't know. Yeah. Also, you said it wrong. Oh? You know. What What did I, what did I say wrong? You said Boom wrong. Because it has an exclamation point That's to correct. the end? <laughs> Because Boom is doing who knows what with their trade schedules. Thank you. I feel much safer now. Nick, I believe you have a thing for me? I do. Uh, not dissimilarly, I've been binge-watching How I Met Your Mother, which we once talked about before on this podcast, if you remember. Um, and, you know, back then I was pretty hazy on it, but uh, back on it now, and I was I was watching it, and I, I don't know, there's something, when you watch it, you can tell it's special about, uh, because it feels like a pretty... I don't want to like hammer it, but like pretty basic setup. Like, oh, it's a guy in New York and he's trying to find love and he's got some quirky friends and they go out for drinks. Like, you know, it sounds like any other sitcom more or less. Um, yeah. but, when you, but when you watch it, um, you can really, I don't know, it feels very special and it feels different from a lot of other sitcoms. So the thing I want to talk about this week is going to be mainly from season one stuff because I don't want to get too much into the other seasons. Um, and sort of the, I think the thing that makes this show so special is that sort of the premise is that um, Ted in the future, the main character, is telling the story of how he met his wife to his kids. Um, and that sort of simple idea where it's like, you know, the opening opening is like him talking to his kids in the future. And then it like flashes back to the main story um, is that you get a, you get this sort of glaze over all the stories where it's it's him narrating and so there's there's fiends of like things being exaggerated, and you can tell it's exaggerated. Um, like a good example of this is in in later seasons, whenever any of the characters do drugs, he just says, "Oh yeah," and then we eat big sandwiches, which is like you know, classic from that show. Um, <laughs> I do I, remember that. <laughs> yeah, so you get you get a couple things from this sort of like not chronological storytelling, this sort of like um, you know person telling a story and. The first thing you get, obviously, is humor, because it's a comedy show. Um, and just like I said with the sandwiches, there's also, like, he can play with time. So there's things like, ah, and that's the last time I kissed that lady. Or, like, there, there was one thing I was watching recently where he's like, uh, but that was a crazy birthday, but not as crazy as that time a goat showed up in my living room, like, two, <laughs> two years later. Like, wait for that in two seasons. I think that's pretty great. Um, Did they ever actually do that episode? I'm sure they do. I don't quite remember, but I'm almost certain. Um, huh. They always do stuff like that. And then there's, like, you know, there's one part where he's like, yeah, my friend Marshall jumped out of the three-story three window. He jumped out of the three-story window, or so he claims. Um, and then you can kind of watch that. The best example of this is like uh, in another one I was watching, there's a rat cockroach creature um, and it flies away at the end of the episode. And I don't know, I guess that's real. It's pretty great. Um, Interesting. Yeah. It's just the thing that boosts it and makes it funnier, but that's not the big thing. The other thing is that it like can have, you know, mysteries and reveals, but the, the really the best thing is that it can cut up the narrative. Um, and you know, it doesn't even have to be from, because it's a narration or anything. It's just that How I Met Your Mother does a good job of cutting up. Like, it's almost never chronological. It always, not always, but a lot of the time starts at the end and then, like, sets you in a crazy situation and then goes back and shows you multiple perspectives on it. Um, and that makes it sort of just more interesting to watch. So, actually, I, I picked out an episode because 
I don't know. I think this, this episode does the best job of this, or it does the best example job of this, but this happens all over the show. Um, Joe, I don't know if you remember this, but there's an episode called The Pineapple Incident. So I'm going to tell this episode chronologically, and it's not going to be that interesting sounding, but here's what happens. Ted gets really, really drunk. Ted, the main character looking for love in the city, is in love with his friend Robin. Uh, he gets really, really drunk when she has a date. Uh, so he calls her all the time. Um, and then his one of his friends, his crazy sex-crazed friend Barney, uh, encourages him to do, not not to think, so that he gets over this girl, I guess. I don't know. And then his two other friends, his more responsible friends, get him, get him to his apartment, put him to bed. Then Ted comes out again, gets more crazy. Um, then his other friend puts him to bed. Then he comes out again, uh, goes to the bathroom, and then he calls someone, gets even more drunk. So the bartender writes his phone number on his arm, and then he goes to his apartment again and goes to sleep. Yet, And that's pretty boring, right? I mean, that's pretty, that's just nothing. Like, that doesn't sound like an interesting piece of media at all to watch. Um, it's not, it's just a guy getting drunk and, you know, doing, coming out and going back to sleep. And that's pretty much all it is. I mean, it's not that much more interesting than that. I know, obviously, I'm just saying it out loud, but uh, but the way this episode goes is that it starts with him waking up and having no memory of what happened. And there's a girl in his bed and his coat's been burned. Um, and his friend Barney is sleeping in the bathtub. And like, there's all these little things that make no sense. So he, throughout the episode, has to go to his other friends and they explain what happened in short parts. Um, and hmm. they just sort of explain what I just said, but like it's cut up so that there's mystery. Um, and that makes it way more interesting. Oh, and also there's a pineapple next to his bed. And that's, sorry, that's why it's called the pineapple incident. Um, and so it goes through all of that. And then there's another layer where the girl in his bed wakes up and explains some more stuff that happened, which I won't go into. But the point is that cutting it up in this way um, just made it a hundred times more interesting. Just, and you know, there's a point in it where the way that they think that the girl in the bed is Robin and that's like a, a moment of tension in the episode, and then it goes on from there. So by you know not letting the audience know exactly what's going on, it makes a sort of more boring series of events more interesting by just literally just cutting it up. And I think that's really cool. And there's you know tons of examples of this show doing that. Um, I won't go into it, but in I just watched an episode where Ted is shown to be like a base almost cheating on his girlfriend the whole time for like a whole episode, and then it's revealed that. Like, nope, it was just a different person, and we filmed that to trick you. I don't know. It's it's weird stuff like that where, I don't know, the simple sort of because someone's telling this story in an out-of-order way, it just gets more interesting. And I think that's good, and I think that's what makes this show special. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy what I've seen of How I Met Your Mother, and I'd, I'd like to go back into it at some point. Yeah, it's great. I'm glad. I'm glad you're enjoying it so much. Like, even episodes I don't like are fully engaging because they're so fast-paced and sort of, like I said, just presented in interesting ways. Nick, would you like to move on to our main event oh, today? Joe, I so would. I'm so hungry to move on to our main event. Oh boy. Okay, so I think it's probably best that you do the the introductory work on this one since you are the avatar expert and we're talking about in avatar last airbender product right sure um so avatar last airbender ended some time ago and then legend of Korra got picked up actually i don't remember exactly when but uh to promote the show some people at nickelodeon i guess were like 
we need to do an Avatar comic book, like Last Airbender continuation to hype up Korra. Uh, so in 2012, I think, um, they launched a trilogy of graphic novels by Gene Yang, who is a, you know, pretty well-known comic guy. And Guri Hiru, which is an art team. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they set us off the first... That's what we're going to be talking about today is the first in the series called The Promise. Um, and this comic yeah. place, you know, almost directly after, or actually even before the end of the last episode of the show, uh, and just continues the story. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's basically a direct continuation because we see what happens exactly after the final shot of the show. Yep, and before. So I would say that it. Um, yeah, and that's interesting because you know the thing about the Last Airbender is that it is very straightforward in the setup of, you know, the conflict and the character arcs, I would say. Um, not not that right, it's yeah. bad, but it's very clean, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's the hero's journey. It, you know, Aang is not sure of himself as the Avatar, uh, slowly gets to learn things, and then has the final confrontation that we've always known would happen with with the Fire Lords. <laughs> and uh, his his sort of counterpart the villain in the first season is Zuko um, and Zuko has the arc of changing sides and realizing that he doesn't have to be a bad guy, um, which is yeah. you know, obviously simplified, but that's how the show ends. Um, and it feels, you know, very well-rounded, very like, this is the end. Yeah. And what, what we have here is kind of in, not, not so much a, a, a complicating of that but because like i do think the plot is still like very easily followable but like it is you know expanding on that that and providing like a, a more uh complicated setting for our characters to interact with yep and that's something i like about this book so much is that just at, like the story in it like the main conflict in this story is that the fire nation colonies in the earth kingdom need to be removed or you know that's what we think at first it's basically how to deal with the people of the Fire Nation who have been living in the Earth Kingdom for pretty much this whole war, and like now that's their home, and now that the war yeah, been... it's all about it's all about decolonization. Like yeah. they, they're, you know, the 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 Earth Kingdom wants uh, all the Fire Nation colonies out, uh, you know, because they they view them as an intrusion, uh, and uh, you know it's kind of an unfolding of what happens when things are you know more complicated than they might initially seem exactly it's a gray zone which is exactly the opposite of the show and makes sense as a continuation for like okay we ended the war but like now what um, and i think that's reflected also in ang and zuko and their conflicts in this book yeah i mean the the main thrust of that is that uh in a in a scene that we get that is supposed to take place before the final scene of the episode of of uh, the show um, we see that, you know, during the, the celebration of having defeated the Fire Lord, uh, Zuko makes Aang promise that if uh, he ever starts to become like his father, then Aang will kill him. Because he doesn't want like that to be a thing that happens in the world again. Uh, and so what we have, you know, throughout the, this, uh, this trilogy of books is uh, Aang's like inner conflict as he struggles with like, you know, is, is Zuko a bad guy for defending this uh, Fire Nation colony? And, like, you know, am I a bad guy for, like, you know, having these conflicting feelings? And at the same time, we have Zuko sort of struggling with, like, his own development into someone who is, like, potentially close to his father. Right. Well, I think Zuko's main thing in the book is, like, 
he's made the right choice at the end of the series um, by listening to someone else. But now when it's more complicated, he needs to be able to sort of trust himself um, to be a leader, be a leader of, you know, a country. Um, and the, yeah. there's a scene in this book where he's visiting his dad in prison and his dad says, you know, something along the lines of like, do you trust the avatar more than yourself? And Zuko's like, yeah. and like, he totally sort of does, which is kind of scary, you know? Like, yeah. Or, and you also have like this whole thing about how, like, you know, at the end he, he is kind of uncertain in himself because he, he, he realized that he's made the right choice, but it's kind of, it's the choice that the fire Lord would have made. Yeah. Or at least like, that's what, you know, all signs point to. Yeah. Um, so this, for me, this is a pretty big book. Um, and that's, that's the thing I'll say about it. If you're sort of trying to get, get it pitched is that this, this comic feels as big as the show, um, sometimes bigger and has so much going on that uh, for me, it's probably my favorite avatar story. Um, just straight up because I think it's so great. Um, I really loved it. Like this was my, this was my first time going into it. And I, I just thought it was so interesting in how it challenges the characters in so like such like compelling ways. Yeah. So we, we sort of start off and it, it skips a year after that first scene. Um, and there's the harmony restoration movement, which is yeah. basically Aang and the gang have, you know, with the earth King and Zuko have decided that like, Oh, these fire nation colonies need to go. And so it's sort of implied that for about a year, Aang has been just moving colonies, just relocating people. Um, But at one point, um, Zuko's being, someone's trying to assassinate him. um, And it's someone from the colonies who is upset. Yeah. And what it turns out is that this is someone who like their, their, their father is, or her father is a, uh, uh, from the fire nation uh, and her mother is uh, from the Earth Kingdom, uh, and you know they, they're all part of this Fire Nation colony uh, called Yu Dao, uh, and so she's someone who sort of feels that like because, uh, her, you know, because she's for effective person purposes in the Avatar world biracial, like she has roots in these two cultures, um, you know, she feels that like the, the the colony is good, like this is her home and this is like, you know, where she belongs. Yeah, and I like the setup in this book that sort of in the beginning, the the team avatar, like the good guys, the objective good guys who have always been on the right side are sort of just dead wrong. Like they're doing the wrong thing in a big way and have been for a year. You know what I mean? Um, and, and they've sort of been just relocating people without thinking about it too much. And it's I like the idea that, you know, going into it, they, they've done something wrong. Um I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't a hundred percent agree that they are starting off from the wrong point. I think that part of what makes Yu Dao in particular and like the other colonies around it like special is that like they've been colonized for like you know a hundred years. Like the, they have had time to like uh, have their their cultures uh, uh, interrelate in ways that like a lot of the more recent colonies haven't. In which like you know those other colonies, a lot of them are like actual intrusions. Uh, and like we see that at the beginning of the book, like how in a lot of the colonies, like the Earth Kingdom uh, citizens are like made to be of a lower class standing than the Fire Nation uh, citizens. Yeah, 
So, like, I, I would not say that the characters are 100% in the wrong at the beginning. I think they're, you know, doing things that are pretty much just. I think, like, that is complicated when we get to uh, these more longstanding, uh, like, civilizations. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And they sort of fuzz it up at the beginning by saying that Dao has been there longer. But, you know, realistically, like... Okay, let's, I mean, let's not get into it because we don't really know what happened before the book. But, you know, at this point, especially Toph uh, and Sokka are like, yeah, why don't we, I mean, especially Toph really is like, oh, why don't the Fire Nation just get the hell out of here? Like, and, and later in this book, when there's like sort of a war escalating, like, you know, Toph like destroys, you know, the Fire Nation army a little bit before. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that, that seems like the wrong, the wrong choice when you get into that part of the book. Um, if, I mean, only because by that point, like the the stakes have been complicated. Yeah, like I I think at the at the beginning, like it's it's a very clear right and wrong situation. Really? I mean, I think I think in the case of the recent colonies, yeah. I mean, I don't know. We didn't see that stuff. I feel like they just said that so that they wouldn't have to like undo their their uncolonization. Um, you know, I feel like the idea is that the, the whole the whole idea is that it's not exactly black and white. And even for newer colonies, maybe I mean, I wouldn't see the newer colonies, but like, I think the whole idea is that it's not that simple. That it's, it's okay to move these people away from their homes. Sure. I mean, where, where the book ends up is like we're moving towards a path of like, you know, cultural intermixing. Yeah, uh, you know we 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 have uh, for one thing, Ang has this whole mini arc of like, you know he he's he's struggling with um, sort of these these Avatar fan clubs that have popped up, uh, which in in some cases he feels have like sort of uh, trifled with his culture. I think it's like you know the parallels are pretty obvious to like ideas of cultural appropriation there. Yeah, uh, because, I agree strongly. You know you you have yeah because you have you know one one fan club. That has popped up. Uh, they've they've given themselves uh, Airbender tattoos, uh, and you know he he basically goes to the extent of saying, "Well, you know, if you actually knew about our culture, then like you'd know that like since you are not an Airbender, like that this is like not okay for you to have." <laughs> yeah, um, this book just throws in like a like a cultural appropriation side plot just for fun. And yeah, it makes a really good case. Like I don't know. It was. I, it really does, and I think like where it ends up is like actually like it's okay to sort of you know within reason like if you are learning about a culture then it's okay to do certain things, um, which I think is like pretty reasonable. Um, but at the same time, like it's, I mean, also like just the whole decolonization aspect in general is like really wild and bold and like not something I expected them to explicitly address in this book. Yeah, you know? I agree. I mean, this book just gives me a lot to think about, I think, and always has. Like, I don't know, even even today, like, sort of, when I read it again to get ready to talk about it, I was like, man, like, I don't know, how do you think that 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 subplot of cultural appropriation fits into the, the ideas of the rest of the, the book and colonization? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of that is just, like, you know, in the in the U.S., we live in a multicultural society, um, and I think you know one that has resulted from colonization. Uh, like, you know, that's not something I think either of us are like prepared to address right here. Uh, but like, there's some there's some sticky stuff going on there. 
Um, and I think what you get at a certain point though, is, uh, when you have cultural intermixing is like you, you have the, the complications of that. But I think, I think it's super interesting in just like, obviously we're two white guys. So we're like, you know, not fully equipped to handle whoa, this. Whoa, but whoa, like... whoa, Joe. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Joe, I'm, I'm just a voice on a podcast, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it's really cool to see a, a book that, you know, I, I is for kids uh, address like these issues with like a, a certain amount of complexity. And I think that's, you know, something we need more of. And it's something that like Gene Yang does all the time. Uh, and I, I really respect him for that. Yeah. I think that um, I, I, I liked a lot of Ang stuff in this book. I felt that um, it really cements his sort of fear of new stuff or like, you know, attachment to tradition. Um, especially since his culture is quite literally dead or like riding on his back, however you want to think about it. Like, yeah, yeah. Tense. And like, I can totally understand why he has problems with a changing world. And I, I like the way that not only he is sort of very emotional about that. And like, sometimes I think makes the wrong choice choices um, when it comes to that sort of stuff. Like, I, I think he's, you know, is, is too uh, one dimensional about the colonies. Um, when he, you know, when he does visit, if that makes sense. Cause, cause at that point, Katara, I, I, I like the way that Katara, um, helps him through that by being more level-headed about it. And she can see a little bit more clearly. And she, I think one of the most interesting aspects of that is just like, you know, Aang is so dead set on his goal of like, you know, not having the, the, the four nations like intersect at all. Yeah. Uh, that like you know he sort of fails to take a step back and realize that hey like actually Katara is from the Water Tribe and I'm not yeah uh, what does that mean for us <laughs> yeah I, I thought that was an awesome moment just for that couple which we didn't get to see a lot of as a couple um, and like yeah, a good it, way to resolve and like sorry it does sort of resolve and like makes its way into the ideas in this book yeah on that note I I, I... It was just a little bit jarring coming from the show, uh, seeing these characters like openly interact as a couple, like not in a bad way, but just like, I thought it was funny. Yeah. I love the way they sort of make fun of it with them, like calling each other sweetie all the time. I feel like that's perfectly in character and like, just, I like the way they use it as humor. Mm -hmm. um, Sokka, you know, in this book is mainly just being funny, but that's something he makes fun of a lot. And I like the way that they don't have drama about it if that makes sense i like that it's just sort of a little gag yeah. i mean i think the the closest they come to that is uh you know when you have ang's initial meeting with like one of his fan clubs uh, and katara is you know getting kind of jealous but which you know i thought was a little bit trite but you know at the end of that scene you do have ang going hey actually this is like i sort of feel more connected to my culture now uh, yeah. I, I like that one because it didn't like blow up it was like it wasn't the way it usually goes. He was like, oh man, that was good to feel at home. And Katara's like, man, I suck. And she's like, <laughs> she doesn't even bring it up, you know? She's just like, I suck. And I, Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I think I think the whole like, oh, girlfriend gets jealous of, of boyfriends receiving attention, even though it obviously isn't anything, is like still very played out and kind of unnecessary. But like it, it led to, I think, a good reversal of that. 
Yes, I agree. It also didn't go on for that long, so. Um, sure, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. But, like, I would have found maybe a different way to do that. It's, like, something that's incredibly common in kids' shows, I think, and, like, I could do without. Okay. Um, yeah. So I have, a, I, have a, I have a lore question for you. Yes, please. So in the in the Avatar universe, we have many different animals. Uh, they're often, uh, or you know, always uh, combinations of different animals that we have in the real world. Yeah, uh, I, I believe turtle crab is an example. Is that turtle correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, there, that, that, that appears in this book, right? Yes. Yeah, but it's interacting with a regular ass hawk. Yeah, because hawks are regular. Yeah, what's up with that? Hawks are in the show. They they're messenger hawks. They're special because they're messengers. I don't know. Um, huh. <laughs> some some animals are regular. There's like cats, and that bear. Okay, remember that bear? That's the friend of the kings. Oh right, yeah. Bosco, the, You're correct. Yeah, Bosco, Bosco the bear. He's regular. Yes. Um, <laughs> some animals are regular. The end. <laughs> I mean, they're usually special right. in some way. Like they're more intelligent or something. Like the hawks are messenger hawks. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. You know, I think it is really interesting to see, like, like, uh, Jin Yang, like, just tackle, like, issues of, of, like, cultural appropriation so openly in this book, especially since, like, you know, I did some reading on it, and, like, the reason that he got this job was because he spoke out about, like, the whitewashing in the Avatar movie. Yeah. And so it's, like, really cool to me that, like, the first thing he does with that opportunity to write these characters for real is just, like, you know, have them address stuff like that. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool. Yeah. Um, anyways, a little more going down the plot. Um, the, the gang, Toph, has been separated for this, well, maybe not the whole year, but for some time, and she's teaching some some uh, metal benders how to metal bend, which makes perfect sense. Um, and she's got some sort of quirky, she's got three quirky students who are a little, like, one-dimensional, but, you know, actually get a little bit of time uh, in the second part of this series where there's a subplot where Sokka and Toph have to teach these kids how to metal bend so that they can win back their their school. Um, and I, I don't know, how do you feel about that subplot? I know that some people don't like it because it's sort of goofy and differentiates from the, the main plot. It's, um yeah, it is very goofy. It's definitely a, a, a departure, and it takes up probably most of the second book, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in that way, it's sort of a way to pad out the the middle the middle act of this story, but at the same time, like I think it's perfectly enjoyable, and it also does like sort of ground us in, you know, maybe the the, the harsher sides, uh, for for all intents and purposes of like the Fire Nation still being there, like it does complicate the issue because like oh well you have, uh, Toph who's been running this school, uh, and then like the, you know the the Fire Nation who says actually this is you know where the the school I used to run. Yeah. It's sort of a uh, so watered yeah. down version of the conflict of, you know, colonization. And it's like, ah, oh, sometimes colonizers are just bad. Just gotta beat them up. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> that was in something I read where Jean Yang said more or less that. Um Yeah, I think that that is often true in real life. <laughs> yeah. Well actually I, I found this interesting. Not that this part of the story is very thematic or anything, but it's interesting that we, you know, we say that like, oh, sometimes colonizers are just bad. But like, if you think about it, like, he was there first, and then Egg made him leave, and then Toph showed up. You know what I mean? Like, he was, he was moved from his home. So isn't he? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's a weird, like, 
side effect of this being a kid's book, I think, is that like we don't see like besides the the instance where we get like, oh well the the Fire Nation people are kind of oppressing the Earth Kingdom people, like which we only see the one time, like we don't get enough of like you know, the the instances of like maybe the the Fire Nation has like displaced people in the Earth Kingdom. Like we don't see that, which is like very much a something that happens with real colonization. Like often much worse, but <laughs> I feel like we've seen a good amount of that in the show. The Fire Nation being dicks. I, I mean Oh yeah, but I, I mean like in that specific case, like we kind of have this weird case where like the the, the Fire Nation guy is kind of justified in wanting to take back his school from Tom. I mean, he's not portrayed as justified. Like he's the dick. He's a big old dick. I mean, yeah, he's painted as that, but like, hey, you want to know that thing about this... that guy? Sure. You'll be glad you're friends with me. He was mentioned in the show. Ha ha. And Azula's like, man, that teacher's stupid to her dad. And Zuko's like, no, he's, he's cool. I like him. And then uh, his dad's like, man, that guy sounds real stupid. Going to send him to the colonies. He got fired. Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the end. Of hey, so. That. <laughs> So something interesting about this is like, you know, later on you have uh, this, this this scene where Zuko is talking to a photo of his uncle Iroh, uh, and there's like this implication almost that Iroh is dead, but then at the end of the book he just kind of shows up and it's like, oh, he retired. Yeah, Iroh's not dead. Zuko's just, that's yeah. another thing. It's like Zuko's like rejecting help in a way. Like he doesn't, I don't know. That's a weird scene yeah. to me, but I... I mean, that, that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Like yeah. because he's he's pushing away my I believe her name is May May yeah May okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and you know he's he's largely kept separate from uh, the the rest of Team Avatar in this yeah and uh sort of an idea set up later is that like he needs to be more content with himself uh, and not push people away. Uh, and that leads into him wanting to find his mother some more, which is a cool little connection. Yeah. I was, I was honestly surprised that they didn't immediately jump into, Hey, let's find Zuko's mother subplot. Yeah. Like but this I, makes I, I, I... Hmm? this makes so much more sense and like is so cool. I don't know. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I, I think I enjoyed this much better considering that we didn't immediately get that. Yeah. Like, I, I think even though that is, like, the thing that's seeded at the end of the show is a, like, hey, buy the comics. Um, like, it, it's still neat. That, they like, didn't know they were going to make comics when they ended the show. Huh. Yeah, I was actually wondering about that. Given, like, the, the timeline of this, like, what, what's the deal with Zuko coming in at the end and saying, hey, where's my mom? <laughs> oh, well, uh, the official story that you can read about is that the, the two guys are guys who made that show. Um, Mike and Brian were like, we want to make a movie. Uh, and Nickelodeon was like, no, you, you can't make a TV movie about Zuko's mom. And they were like, rats. Um, and then also live action stuff happened. Um, and I don't know, huh. it just fell through. Uh, and the reason, the, the real reason I think that they did The Promise before The Search, which is the next series about finding Zuko's mom, is that um, they wanted to test out the creative team. Um, and I, I think that's what happened. They wanted to see how it sells. Um, how good the book was. Uh, I think that's the real reason. That makes sense, yeah. And test they did, and it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
other stuff. I mean, we haven't really done that much plot, so that's fine. That's good. I mean, I, I'm I think we've you know discussed the gist. Yeah, but like just just other points, like all the characters in character, all the characters funny. Like Suki is in this book, which is cool. Like, um, I don't know. Yeah. I like her. I liked everyone. I like I like the idea that like the warriors of Kyoshi are like Zuko's bodyguards now. Like that's a that's a cool like incorporation of like oh these characters don't have anything to do let's give them something to do yeah no i agree i I like the idea of them like going around the world helping people more or less which is sort of set up in the show a little bit like during the war they're like we're just going around helping people um and then they help up in the woods that one time (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I don't know i like that i like that all the characters come together for this like almost battle situation well it's a battle but you know um, another thing i liked was the earth king i like that this is sort of another thematic thing, but I like the way that him, like as an as a as a country that like lost the war, feels the need to like overcompensate with aggression and like mm-hmm. no not compromising. I, I I like that idea, and like I like the idea of the Fire Nation as a country that lost the war, like struggling with putting their foot down and like not being tossed around. If that makes sense, I feel like those yeah. are two very real life. Um, ways that countries react to after wars um so i thought that was pretty yeah, cool yeah definitely and i like that they're personified in zuko and the king so that's cool um mm-hmm. it's another cool thing um uh, jesus what else happens in this book other stuff that how do you feel about the action that's a good i mean the art's obviously amazing we didn't say that but it's amazing yeah i mean i i think i think we should actually like take this as an opportunity to discuss your hero like they've been doing consistently incredible work for maybe 20 years now Uh, i know that i know they started out with those power pack books but they've just like you know this is before i think like the height of their powers which i think i would i would say are around now like i i mentioned to you before we started recording i read superman smash of the clan uh earlier which is actually like this same creative team like gene yang also wrote it and it's just like they're so good (laughs) yeah there's there's two of them one of them does the pencils and inks, right? And the other colors? I I believe so. Uh, they're an art team, yeah. so they're, it's... What is you Yeah. Like, I, I'm just consistently amazed by their work. Their, like, grasp of the craft is incredible. I, I want to be a gear hero when I grow up. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I mean, the art is yeah. just, just so clean. Like, they're just doing their style. It's so clean. Like, the colors are so nice. Um, everything is, you know, inked, like, it's so clear, and then, like, I'm not sure who's in charge of layouts, but, like, some nice layouts, like, yeah, especially for some of the action stuff in this book, which, like, we're about to talk about, and, like, just very dynamic, it feels very dynamic, um, and that's hard to do, especially with, like, it's such an appealing style, and it, like, mirrors the show perfectly, and, like, it's all just, like, really impressive stuff, like, I, I think, a lot of the time in comics just like being like consistently very very good is kind of like thrown under the radar uh, and i i don't want to discredit them because they're just like incredible at what they do a machine incredible yeah hats off i'll tell you that they just get a grasp on the avatar characters more from here on out um mm-hmm. if i had to complain i'd say that ang looks a bit young but i'm a super fan so and it, it's always better from here so it's awesome. i mean even here he he looks older than he does in the show which is good considering mm-hmm. like a year has passed he looks still a little bit kiddy in some but they did make him taller they made him guitars yeah, he, he has he I has think. i think broader shoulders too his face looks a little it's fine i'm not I'm, yeah, no complaint yeah. for me. 
It's perfect. It's all it's perfect. It's also just like interesting to see, to see these characters not off model, but with a different model. Yeah, new costume. Yeah. It's always yeah. fun. Um, I think it all makes sense. Katara lets her hair down. It's nice. Uh, Aang is taller. Uh, Toph doesn't change too much, actually. Yeah, she has her her metal arm bracelet, but that's largely like not shown. Yeah, she has that before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I liked here another thing I liked about this book as a fan is the incorporation of old characters. Um, like I said, that guy from the Fire Nation—that's like a just just a perfect little way to connect the show and the comics. I like uh, Toph's, you know, sort of comedic side characters. Um, but at the same time, like there's a, an appearance from the freedom fighters, which is awesome. Like what a, what a good way to call them back. And of course they would be there like in the heat of yeah. being in conflict against the fire nation. Like it all makes sense and it, it expands the world in a, in a great way. Um, so I give a props for that too. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I love avatar and this book was exactly my shit. Yeah. It's great. Um, how do you feel about the action? I'm just going to ask you that since it is a comic, it's not the show. Um, I, I think, I mean, we've already talked about Gear Hero, like their, their layouts are really incredible. Uh, and I, I, I think everything flows like really dynamically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I do. My, if I had one complaint is that some of the action seems meaningless. I'm sure that they have some sort of requirement for action scenes because you'll read these comics. Oh, definitely. And like. Considering it's, it's Nickelodeon, almost certainly. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm so. And I mean, like, you know, Marvel comics often have, or Marvel and DC often have like, you know, one fight scene per issue requirements typically so yeah uh, i'd imagine they're working with a similar proportion it gets a little tedious later on because team avatar is just so like they just kick so much ass like it's it's difficult to like and like the writers don't seem to care that much about like oh a difficult fight it's just like oh let's it's just like the team like kicking ass for like a couple pages um and it's just not as fun to watch as the animation because it's panels and that sucks but like that's how it is. Um, so if I had one complaint, it'd probably be that. Um, I think they're very good at like rendering scenes dy- dynamically, but like there is at the beginning of a third book of the third book. I think what you're talking about is like there's a there's a fairly not pointless fight scene, uh, but it, it it lasts a couple pages, um, and it's when Katara and Aang are entering New Dao, and like there's a, a brief confrontation for no reason, um, and like it's. <laughs> Yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't quite amount to anything. Um, it's funny though. I I, I yeah. They're in it's just like it's it's, it's funny. one of those weird. <laughs> and it's like, oh, why did it have to be an axe factory? Yeah, an axe factory. Why did it have to be an axe factory? <laughs> Actually, you know the the the, the brilliance of that line. Uh, I I think I'll forgive the scene for. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, there's there's fun new characters. I like I like that a totally obscure character from the the freedom fighters is dating this like now more important the girl who tried to kill zuko i really like that she's hot and he's really ugly and everyone keeps commenting on that i think it's funny <laughs> i thought that was yeah. funny. this, this <laughs> that was pretty goofy yeah um yeah so this is this is just a great just great comic and it, it feels big and it feels like avatar um and it's pretty perfect for me yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan, and I you know I can't wait to see where it goes next. Which you know I th- I think we should sort of reveal where we're going with this. And I think uh, you know we've discussed this before, but um, I think the podcast is going to become temporarily an Avatar podcast. Yes, catch up on these comics. Yes, 
what a good idea. Anyways, um, yeah. next one is the search, which is also so great um, and sort of wonderful, big also because it's such an unanswered question from the show. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. just as good as the promise for sure. Um, Delightful. I can't wait to get to it. Okay, so today, yeah, uh, as we do every week, uh, we actually are bringing back an old favorite. What? Nick, how would you feel about uh, doing another round of real or fake Pokemon? All right. I mean, we do it every week. <laughs> For those who have not listened to prior episodes, uh, this is the game that we play every week on this show, where I give Nick some names of some Pokemon that may or may not be real or fake, uh, and he has to guess whether they are real or fake. Uh, the element that I am adding to this is that upon the stipulation that these Pokemon are real, you have to guess what type of thing they are. Wow, that's... Joe, remember last time we played this and I failed all of them? Mm-hmm. So, so why'd you make it harder? You should make it easier. By that, I thought I was making it more entertaining. Joe, watching me fail in new ways. I guess, actually, I guess that is pretty entertaining. <laughs> Had, like what's that show with like the balloon things that people jump on and it's hard and they fall into the water what american that? ninja warrior i don't know um you should add that i should <laughs> jump on like crazy balloon things and fall 50 feet into water i don't know if that fall would make for the it. best radio but i can i'll see what i can do okay okay first up impidimp Wait. Oh, okay. Okay, 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 okay. Impidimp is is fake. Impidimp is real. What? Come on. Tell me tell me what type of thing this thing is. Impidimp um is short, is round, is shaped a little bit like an upside down acorn. Um <laughs> is gray has red lips and a tube mouth like a tube that sticks out <laughs> of red lips. Um, and it has like a little like like bead like like a you know that fish in nemo with the glow glowy you know that fish it's got a glowy thing <laughs> it's got that and it's got like two duck feet but like smashed into its body so no legs um mm. and um and also, he makes a sound. He goes rah, 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 all the time, and um, yeah. That's uh, so I'm going to send you a picture of Impidimp. Uh, right. Suffice it to say, you were incorrect in your uh, description. Wow, that is disgusting, <laughs> and I hate it. I, <laughs> I don't. Okay, it's, he's pink. He's got a big head. Uh, he's got bat-like ears and a tattoo on his face and a big black tongue and long limbs. That's what he really mm. looks like. All he's, right. he's an imp. <laughs> Do I have to keep playing, or is that it? Uh, I think we can stop there for now. Thank since God. That section went on for a while. Joe, I'm sweating all, all over the place. God. <laughs> Shower. Oh, my God. Christ. Okay, Nick, to close out the show, I believe you have a wise quote for us. I do. This one comes to you from, from, from Kung Fu Panda, and I know you know it, but it's probably been a while since you thought about Kung Fu Panda. 
Oh, it's been years. Okay, so this is the turtle. Imagine I'm the turtle. Yesterday's history. Tomorrow is a mystery. And today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. That was Master Ugwe. Thank you very much, Nick. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Out of Our Heads, a pop culture podcast from the minds of Joe Bordner and Nick Protopapis. You can contact us at outofourheadspod at gmail.com where you can send us listener questions. My Twitter handle is at Joby underscore draws. You can read my webcomic Aeronauts at jobydraws.com. We had a new page today. As always, Nick has nothing to promote. That might change in the near future. Who knows? Uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It would really help at the show. Thank you and bye. Hello, Joe, welcome back to... This isn't working. I knew you were recording from that silence. <laughs> what? I knew that in that silence you had started recording. <laughs> okay. He's doing Hello, it. welcome back to... Why, why do you always choose like the moment I start talking to start talking? <laughs> Joe, I told you, we have a talent at overtalk. <laughs> yeah, we, we have the least chemistry possible. We just talk over each other at all times. <laughs>